There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. A high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzy Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for it inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I'm your host, Eric Cole. You may recognize me from my work over on Talking Chop, where I've been a part of the, the masthead for the better part of five seasons now, and the deputy site manager, uh, as well as the minor league editor for, you know, depending on which title you're talking about, the last two to four seasons. Joining me tonight, we are going to have both Garrett Spain, who you can follow on Twitter at BravesMILB, and Matt Powers55, uh, who are both going to be here to talk about uh, a lot of mailbag questions. Uh, I did want to address something really quick before we kind of get to the, the guys. Uh, Gaurav really wanted to be on the show tonight, but we record on Thursdays, and he had some work responsibilities that were going to be earlier in the evening that would have kind of made recording really tight. So rather than kind of force the issue and kind of figure out, like, everyone else is going to be off work and then, you know, to be able to be on the show, to be able to accommodate having Gaurav on it, Gaurav's just going to kind of make his triumphant return uh, at the next show, which will be in the new year. We are not going to have a show next week. Uh, for obvious reasons, just in the middle of the Christmas week doesn't make much sense. Please enjoy your families. You know, enjoy the time that you're going to spend with them. Enjoy the gift giving, the holiday festivities. You know, you can you can deal with that a week without us. Uh, since I don't imagine we'll have much to talk about, and even if there's some sort of emergency type thing that happens, uh, at the very least, where that will where that will appear is on the Talking Chop podcast, which is on the same feed as this one. So if you're subscribed to the Talking Chop podcast. Uh, feed on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you bo- get both these podcasts. And if something happens and you want to get a reaction as to kind of, you know, if there's a trade that, you know, we lose some prospects, I'm sure that I'll get roped into the, doing that uh, with Brad and you'll get at least those initial instant reactions that over there if something happens next week. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen, but it could. It's entirely possible. So anyway, Matt, Garrett, how are you? I'm doing better than Eric right now. I've now I've given him some a uh, little bit of a hard time with some computer issues tonight. And by computer issues, what Matt means is that he just doesn't turn his computer on, and then he turns his computer on two minutes before the podcast records, and then realizes that his headphones don't work at all, which resulted in a lengthy troubleshooting process where he had to restart his computer. But it seems like it's all working now. Garrett, how are you, man? Uh, I'm just happy I'm not the one that's causing all the issues this time. <laughs> oh, the night's young, Garrett. Let's just be honest about it. Uh, and and your track record says otherwise. There's a very there's a better than average chance that either like a member of your well, Matt's had this happen too. Either a member of your household or one of your pets is going to come barreling into your room soon. Uh, one of my personal favorite road to Atlanta moments though was uh, during the holidays. Actually, now that I think about it, it was during one of the holidays. And Matt's mother burst into the room he was in that he was trying to hide in so he could record, uh, and like yelling at him for having the lights on or the lights off. And that was hysterically funny. Um, it's not quite up there with, you know, Garav nearly dying on there when, you know, he, after he'd eaten the subway, but it's up there for sure. Um, this is going to be a relatively shorter show this week. The, um, the idea behind this is just we're going to do some mailbag questions just to cover the topics that are on your, on your guys' minds. Um, Again, if this runs a little less than an hour, that's that's completely fine with us. We don't necessarily want to kind of – I don't want to make up content for the sake of content. It's because at the end of the day, it is the offseason and not a lot has happened that is going to impact the minor leagues. Uh, we did talk a good bit about the minor league contraction stuff last week. And oddly enough, as soon as that podcast posted, there were a couple other developments. But we're they're more just – that's more posturing and I don't want to like – go down too many rabbit holes with all of that. But suffice it to say that, you know, that that's kind of the big story in terms of minor league stuff is kind of, you know – MLBs versus MILBs, they're, you know, the back and forth in terms of, you know, what they are saying about each other and what, you know, their positions are. Uh, beyond that, not much has changed. It just, it hasn't. So we're going to get to mailbag questions. Uh, we actually really like enjoying these because it's kind of like a wide range of topics and it's actually pretty hysterical to us as to some of the things that you guys really do care about. Some of them, a lot of them are really interesting questions and some of them are kind of bizarre. Uh, and we love all those. So 
The first one, and I'm going to go to Garrett first and then uh, Matt on this, is how long is too long to hold on to pitching prospects? It seems odd so few have moved. Garrett, you first. Uh, I mean, I honestly don't know. <laughs> it's Pitcher development is so, like, I mean, every player development is, like, it doesn't really follow a set path, especially pitchers. I mean, I guess holding on to them too long is when their arms explode. That's the point at which it's been too long. Well said. <laughs> Matt, what about you, man? There really isn't a time frame because some don't really have a clear path of development. Some take short times. I mean, pitchers move to the big leagues quicker than hitters in some cases, other than really the most advanced hitters, I think, because you're not really learning to hit new kinds of pitches, which is what slows some hitters down. But uh, you have that. Although some pitchers take a little longer to learn the new ball, but it's really just a matter of is this going to be a quick pitcher to develop, a, fast, a slow pitcher to develop, or is this guy going to run into arm problems? So it's really a mixed question. I don't really think there's a right answer for that at all. I mean, I do think we need to trade an arm or two as quickly as possible, but and we might have held on to one or two of them a little too long, as in past last deadline, but. Yeah, it's kind of a tough question. Is a general question. Okay, so I know this is very likely to be just a very brave, specific question, but I will speak generally, is that there's obviously going to be a difference between high school and college pitchers in this regard, or and international guys as well, for that matter, is that if they're younger and they get the AAA and they need to spend a season, uh, two or even three seasons at AAA, it doesn't matter nearly as much than if it's a college-age guy, because then you're kind of getting into more advanced years and you're getting much less peak value potentially out of them. So those guys are going to be treated differently than guys who started in the pros younger. Now, generally speaking, one thing, one thought that has been crossing my mind is that you, it does feel a little bit like that if you can get a really good value for a guy who is at double A now, that it might, if, if you don't, unless you're like really sold on him and that's who you want, I almost feel like you should be a little bit more compelled to move that player. Before they get the AAA, because so many things, so many things can change. And we have a couple questions that are going to allude to my point later on, but it's that the difference between the between the balls in AA and AAA, you don't necessarily want to pass up trading a player that you will probably end up trading anyway. If you are not sure how that his pitches are going to play in AAA, it has nothing to do with the level of competition necessarily, but it does have to do with the, the physical differences of the ball and the seams being different, which results in you know like spin rates being a little bit wonky, movement on pitches being a little bit wonky, and commanding the ball is a little bit trickier too. Now some guys they can just it doesn't really matter. They, they, they either their spin rates are so crazy that they could be throwing something like a like a cue ball and it would still exact do exactly what they wanted it to do. But for some other guys that need that little bit extra movement or need that extra bit of spin or like the grip is, you know, throws them off and it throws their delivery off or their release or whatever, then, you know, if that's the case, and I'm sure that teams are doing this on the, you know, on their own in various different ways. It's kind of project it's kind of how is this guy going to do with the new baseball and how is he going to, you know, do with the, the current, you know, hitting environment, whether it be launch angle, the new baseball, whatever. Um, now in terms of being brave specific, it's possible they have hung on. They, it's possible they've hung on to some players too long. They were at, at the trade deadline. They did move Joey Wentz. They did move Colby Allard. Uh, those are guys who are probably wise to move because in Colby Allard's case, uh, a lot of the shine had worn off of him because he hasn't really had the velocity that that, we, that the Rays were necessarily hoping he would develop. Um, you know, has some has some strong secondaries. Might be a back of a rotation guy. It seems like he's. It might be a good a good place in in Texas to have a real opportunity and a consistent opportunity to, p- to pitch, which I'm a, I'm a big Colby Allard fan, and you know, adding the cutter was certainly a, a positive development for him. Um, same thing with Joey Wentz. is a guy who has, has had arm fatigue and, you know, you know dead arm issues a, a, couple, a few times, uh, in addition to, you know, injury issues that have kind of cropped in and out. Um, probably a back-of-rotation guy. Those are guys you don't want to necessarily just strand in AAA because all of a sudden they just, their value becomes less and less because apparent that so many guys have passed them in the depth chart 
that they're not going to, they're just going to be there at AAA and, you know, teams aren't just, can just wait the Braves out and even, you know, potentially, you know, start talking about whether he's going to be a rule five pick, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now the guys that you worry about in this particular, in this particular case are guys like Tuki Toussaint. Um, maybe a guy like Bryce Wilson, maybe a guy like Patrick Weigel, but I don't think that it's too late for any of those guys yet. I think there, there's a chance that they can either find a role with Atlanta or still get trade value elsewhere because in a couple other cases, there's a lot of high ceilings still available to them. But the guys that you worry about losing trade value because you hang on to them too long are guys that are like pitchability guys that don't have great stuff, but have put up decent results in the minor leagues. You don't want to do, you don't want them to have multiple runs through AAA, maybe like cups of coffee in the major leagues where they get exposed a little bit and all of a sudden they're not nearly as exciting because at the end of the day, the teams that are going to be trading with you are go, if you think he's so good, then why isn't he in your rotation? And, you know, that that just affects their value and and how much that value drops off. You know, it starts off slow, maybe a little bit here, a little bit here, and then at some point, you know, they're just not worth that much in trade at all because there's a big drop off. You know, they've been in the minors forever and they won't even, a team won't even put them on the 40 man roster or do anything with them when they're on there. So the short answer is there's not a perfect answer to that question. There's a lot of variables. Uh, but I do agree with the general crux of the question is that, that I feel like that they have kind of let this drag on too long. Uh, I've been pretty vocal on the fact that they have a bit of a log jam in the minor leagues at the pitching, on the pitching side and they're not, the, there, there hasn't been the development needed to kind of go, okay, these two more, you know, there's been Soroka and Freed, who seem like they're going to be in the rotation. You know, this next group of guys, you know, Kyle Wright, Bryce Wilson, you know, Patrick Weigel, no one's really kind of latched onto another spot that makes you go, okay, now you can deal the rest of these guys or you can deal some of the rest of these guys. I think the Braves are being unsure as to what they want to do with those guys, and as a result, it's kind of impacted their ability to make trades, uh, in addition to the trade market being a little bit wonky. Uh, next question is, what prospects do you think are more likely at, more likely to be at higher trade, current trade value than they will be in the future? Um, okay, this is kind of a weird question. I'll go to Matt first, but uh, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. But Matt, you first. I think that the guy that whose value is the highest at the point, this point is probably a guy like Bryce Wilson. I don't think that he would have higher value than he is going to now because I don't think he's going to end up being a long-term starter. So at least trading him while he's got a chance at starting and still has that relief possibility is where you would get the most value for him as opposed to just having that relief ability, which is still good, but it's not as valuable as having a chance to start. Garrett, what about you, man? Yeah, I think Bryce is a good choice there. I think another guy that's, you know, pitching wise, it's kind of might be at peak value is a guy like Kyle Mahler. Uh, I mean, he had a great season last year. He saw an uptick in his stuff. And so you could, he's really started to got, get a lot of attention. And, you know, I could see him going up, but I could also see him, you know, making that move to AAA. He could be a guy that struggles with that move because of his command issues. So that's a guy I could see going down in value. I'm trying to think on, the hitter side of guys, a lot of guys on the hitter side. So I don't think, I think a guy, a guy who could theoretically lose some value over this year, simply because he's so young and he kind of struggled at the end of the year last year would be a guy like Drew. I don't think he's going to lose a ton of value. And I would be a little afraid to trade him depending on the package. But I mean, Drew is another guy who could theoretically lose some value this year just given that he's at such an advanced level and you sh- I mean we should expect him to struggle in the next year you know at least first half of the season yeah the, t- the trouble with a guy like waters is that one of two things is going to happen either he's going to figure things out and he's just going to go wild uh, in which case it's just absolutely not going to be the case and all of a sudden he becomes untradeable or the strikeout issues that he does have and like he had some issues with team usa that he was you know that definitely a lot of swing and miss uh seems to be a lot of forcing the issue so you worry a little bit that, that he's a guy that that could happen to. Uh, in terms of what is likely, I think it's those pitchers at AAA. Uh, Tucker Davidson's going to be in the same group because if he, you know he's he's kind of put himself in the conversation as a top ten prospect, and that was through a lot of hard work and you know in showing out a bit last year. Uh, not so much in Florida, uh, but when he was in Rome as well. They, you know, there's a lot of really good scouts that really like him. But if he if, if he comes out slow too, that's another guy that it. 
you know, you're starting to get guys who are kind of been in the system for a long time, and those are the guys that can lose value the most quickly because the more miles you put on an arm, you know, and they haven't forced away onto the majors, then it becomes a, you know, at some point, what, how much value do they have at all? And then they stop, they stop getting credence as prospects because one of the things that it gives the guy a certain level of prospect ranking is like, you know, the age in which he gets there and kind of how soon is he ready to contribute. And if it seems like he's just not making, taking the next steps necessary, then that kind of changes the, the outlook for that player quite a bit. This happens with all, like all kinds of prospects and it happens with pitching prospects a lot is that guys that are like normally that are ranked in the top 40, top 50, uh, on like, you know, top 100 lists. And not, they just don't make that next step with their command or, you know, or something like that. And then all of a sudden they're just kind of lingering around AAA, you know, and maybe they'll get a spot start here and there. They get protected from the rule five, but over time people just kind of forget about them simply because they're not forcing their way onto the, on the minor league, ro- the major league roster. And that's the important consideration. Now, in terms, generally this is going to be guys who are just getting older. So you're, you're going to look at those prospects that are getting on 24, 25 years old. Uh, as the guys who are the ones that are probably going to be at peak value if they're any good in the system right now. But there's also a chance that, you know, the short answer is it's probably some of those pitchers. But there's nothing is a given necessarily. It's not like, you know, there's like this trending down, you have to trade a guy for it, it's too late type thing because the Rays do have some guys that have some warts. But, for example, a guy like Kyle Wright who is a college pitcher and if he has another bad year next year, uh, his outlook changes drastically. He's also a guy that has the stuff where if all of a sudden he comes out and lights the world on fire, he could end up making the rotation and never seeing the minor leagues ever again. So, you know, th- there's definitely guys with significant chances to have lower trade value and overall value that, that can change very significantly. But I think that the pick of Bryce Wilson is a decent one. I really like Bryce and I think that he can make it as a major leaguer, but that, you know, that developing the third pitch and, you know, he basically has a fastball right now because the breaking ball isn't, hasn't been great. Uh, particularly in the major leagues, uh, and you know, that, you know, having that change up and being able to like be how throw it with confidence and you know throw it against guys who you know you have to change speeds on because you don't want to be a guy who you know all that all all pitter has to do is sit on your fastball and then you'll know, be able to clock it. So you know that, that that's a decent one, uh, but there's a guy, he's also a guy I still like, and it's not like he's a guy that I think will just ultimately flame out altogether. Um, so the next one is who, what should we look for from 2019 draft prospects in this system, in the system this coming year? Uh, Garrett, you first. Uh, I mean, there's definitely some guys. I think the most interesting guys that you need to watch are all of the prep guys that they got. Guys like Michael Harris, Vaughn Grissom, Tyler Owens. I think that's going to be the biggest storyline this year is seeing how those guys develop and how they're going to fill out the system. The draft last year was more of a, you know, you see with getting guys like Langoliers and Shoemake up top, it wasn't aimed at getting that one top end talent. It was aimed at getting talent throughout because, you know, they don't have the international guys to fill out rosters. So you have to get as many possible bodies as you can in the draft. And so there's just a lot of depth and we're going to see a lot of lottery tickets on the prep side this year that we're going to have to keep an eye out. Those three are ones that are, you know, the biggest guys that I would look for. And then, I mean, going back to Shoemake and Langoliers, I think Langoliers is not as interested in his development because I trust Contreras, but it's very important. I mean, he was the ninth overall pick. You want to see how he does, but I'm interested to see how Shoemake does because I think you're going to see them try to make some changes as a swing, try to tap into more power, work on launching on stuff. So watching how his offensive profile changes at double A this year, I think is going to be an, is going to be intriguing for me. And it's, he has the biggest potential to go either way up on prospect lists or way down, just depending on how he does and how those changes take effect in his game. Matt, what about you, man? I think that the top two picks, both of them should reach the upper levels of the minors this year at some point. I mean, with their high level of college experience, both playing in some of the best leagues in the country, and the fact that the Braves are very hesitant to not only send anyone to Florida, but to not send them there for long. And on top of that, the location issues of Florida possibly making things even more complicated. Uh, I'd be shocked if those guys did not see time at least 
sometime in AA, if not starting the year there. So those guys are what I would watch for. Obviously, the guys I'm more excited to watch are the high schoolers from last year's draft. I mean, that's where the real upside in that draft is, and there's just so many that are worth watching. Uh, now, there's another question on them, so I'm going to hold off on really getting into the names on this question, but, I mean, the high school guys are what I really want to watch. So, I have thoughts on this, and the, the, there's definitely two groups of players worth watching. One is the the Langoliers shoemaker group, and then there's the like the kind of the the day three, and then some of the early day two guys too. Um, the, those players are the ones that are really interesting to me. Langoliers and shoemaker are interesting cases because I have learned to not care about numbers and how players look if they're college draftees during their draft year. Just because they're just not like you know, instructs law changes are going to get made, um, particularly. And I think I think Garrett's right is that there's going to be some retooling of Shoemake, uh, and I think that you know Langlers just have to make some changes too. Uh, it's also it's easy to forget that he was coming off an injury that is kind of known to sap your power, uh, at least that first time coming back. So I want to kind of see how they look this year, fresh and healed, um, and kind of. Seeing any adjustments, adjustments that the Braves made, I want to see if Shoemaker is filled out a little bit. I'm a little bit skeptical that that's going to happen because if you're a college draftee and you're just that skinny guy, then that just might be the guy that you are. But I would like to see him have put on maybe a little bit more muscle. Uh, I don't think it would restrict his movement too much. It would, and I certainly think it would certainly serve him some good, uh, particularly if he makes some changes to his swing because he hits the ball hard. Um, we saw him do that at Rome. That's just something that he does, and he he hits the ball hard. And with Langoliers. You know, when you're, when you're catching, it almost feels like the physical toll of a college season. I mean, even though he missed time from the, with the injury, like, he's gonna have to kind of show what kind of how he can handle a full season's workload. Um, and hope, in the minor leagues, you'll definitely get some breaks here and there with, you know, you get, you're, no one's catching every day. Uh, but I can certainly understand why he wouldn't be necessarily at peak form after being drafted simply because that's, you know, having like the long, you know, world college world series tournament and all this other stuff, you know, and having to get moved and, you know, get get all that sorted out. I totally get why people don't necessarily look at college numbers too much. Uh, It's they're nice when they're good, but you don't even think about them too much. You have to kind of look to the next year and kind of how they're developing uh, year to year. Uh, But there's a lot of really interesting names on the call on the, in the lower minors, I think that where you're going to want to look for really interesting breakout cases is going to be in Danville and Rome, because between those two levels, I think is where we're going to see the Von Grissoms and the Michael Harris's and you know the Tyler Owens and all those other guys who it's unclear how how many if any of them are going to break out. Uh, Makai Baxter, I put in that same group. Um, we don't know how many of those guys are going to break out, if any, but those are where a lot of the more exciting upside plays are. Um, so. If you're kind of looking for like what levels you want to watch the most, I mean, look, keep keep track of Lion Leaders, keep track of Gwinnett because there's a lot of really good pitchers there. All these things are true. I mean, I, I imagine that Austin Riley has a really good chance of starting the year in AAA too. So there's going to be a lot of things to watch in Gwinnett. Um, and then there's going to be some guys in AA as well. But like those lower minors are where we kind of see those these breakout stars. One player that I'm really keeping an eye on is Bryce Ball because I suspect that Matt is right. Is that with all the issues with Florida, like currently not having a place to play, the Braves have shown a reluctance to really kind of send their top prospects there. I'm not really sure how well served he is to start in Rome again. I mean, maybe the beginning of the year makes some sense because I mean he didn't play the whole year in Rome or his whole time in the year in Rome. He played a bunch of time in Danville too, so maybe you start him there and then you kind of figure out if you want to just jump him to Mississippi or even higher or you know do something else with him. But he is a really interesting bat, and with the potential of a DH coming to the National League, he you know, has the potential to be the guy that you want to be, you know, moving up the ladder because he is a big, big, strong dude. He's pretty much first base only, which is problematic because there's a really good first base in Atlanta right now. So, you know, there's not like a, a role for him necessarily that you can go, wow, he can move really fast and jump on the roster. But if he, if the bat continues to play in the, in, in the minor leagues, you know, that's a kind of a, a DH possibility or maybe you th- they, they start figuring out if they can play left field or something like that because he is a really fun player to watch in terms of what he does at the plate. Um, so, uh, the next question is, uh, oddly enough, our own Sparhawk, Aaron Houston, uh, picking at Matt. So, Matt, you're going to get this one first. Uh, Matt Powers on Prospect Lives has a prep, prep lefty going to the Braves in next year's draft. 
Obviously, it's early, but would you hate another prep lefty throwing low 90s being picked? Matt, you're up. Well, I want to first say that I am not the one that made that pick. That was a three-man mock draft where we each split the picks for 10 of the teams in a serpentine order. So I did not actually make the Braves pick. Um, that would not have been my pick. I did. It's not that I didn't who, like who, the pick. Who, who made the pick, Matt? It was Kyler, Kyler Peterson. Okay, okay. I, I don't mind the pick, but it, I mean, he's an extremely high upside player who probably would be in that top 10 to 15 spots at this point, but he's going to miss much of, if not all of, next year with an arm injury. Uh, so there's some real questions about Dax Fulton, the guy that we're talking about, but the upside is top left in the class, in that prep class this year, just a matter of is he actually healthy? What is he going to be when he returns? So it's really hard to like him, but if you're looking for just an upside play, he's a good pick at that point. I mean, I think there's plenty of other guys that I would have been looking at in the board at that point. If it was up to me, I would have probably looked at a couple of the prep right-handed pitchers because I actually like some of them in this class. And... Uh, maybe a guy like uh, Carson Montgomery out of uh, Florida, maybe even a college right-hander, um, another guy who's coming off an injury, Kevin Abel from Oregon State, a uh, kid that would have been probably a top-ten pick before he was maybe that top-five pick range at this point last year, early starts last spring, but then he needed Tommy John himself. Uh there's a chance he'll be back before the draft, but yeah, another high upside guy, a guy who's a little bit more proven, and I think a guy who's maybe more likely than Fulton to actually pitch before we get to the draft this year. Uh, Slade Saccone from Miami, the guy, uh, another college right-hander that I really like, a guy I really liked as a high school kid, but dealt with some injuries in senior year of high school. He's healthy, he's showing the same really, really nasty stuff at Miami. Just another player that I really like. Uh, at this point, based on what the draft is looking like, the strength of the pitchers in this draft and where the Braves pick, I would probably be looking at a pitcher as of right now. I mean, it wouldn't be at the end of the world. I mean, at this point, you're just kind of wanting to pick the best player available. What are you kind of thinking, Garrett? Well, Matt knows the guys in the draft way better than me, so I'm not going to go into that. General, my general draft uh, strategy would, has kind of changed over the last few years. I, I personally don't like taking picks that high in the draft, unless it's a guy, you know, like a Soroka where you got, where they knew that that was their guy. They were getting a steal on him. They had confidence in him. And, I mean, obviously, the front office is going to have those guys, but I prefer to take hitters because they're more valuable in trades. They're less likely to blow up. Uh, You're just less volatile, I think. So for me, I prefer always being, well, I would definitely prefer a hitter, but, you know, if, if, you know, Matt's opinion is that it's a stronger draft for pitchers, then, you know, it obviously makes sense. You know, definitely always best player available is just kind of what you want to go with. And if that's a pitcher, then who cares how hard he throws? If he's the guy, he's the guy. Yeah, there's a few th- people are asking us draft questions already, and I kind of want to head some of that off because I think that some player, some people fall in love with certain players and where they're ranked currently versus what's going to happen in about five months when these guys actually start. Well, I say five months. They're going to start playing sooner than that. But – when a lot of these guys start playing spring ball and things like that, the orders in which these mock drafts are going to be taking place are going to change so much that while the mock drafts are fun because you get to talk about the players that will probably be in some discussion of the first round, the likelihood that those players are actually going to be close to where they picked is so low that I don't necessarily get caught up in where mock drafts currently have the Braves picking somebody. Because it doesn't make much sense. It just doesn't. 
especially when it comes to prep pitchers, because those are the like some of the more volatile commodities before a draft anyway. You know, people fall in love with them, and then you know something happens, and they miss the start because they're sore, sore, and all of a sudden they get picked in the third round, or they end up going to college. And it's just not worth getting worked up about. In general, I would not hate the idea of the Braves taking a pitcher. In, just in general. There's ones I like. Uh, you know, Carson, Carson Montgomery is one that I have liked. Uh, Tanner Burns is another guy. Uh, you know, some some rankings currently have Cole Wilcox uh, kind of going down towards the bottom of the first round. I don't see that happening. I think he's going to get picked higher than that. Um, but generally speaking, you know, there's some really interesting names to talk about and look at, at least to start with. Uh, I've been, for the last year or so, I've really liked Pete Crow Armstrong, who's an outfield prospect. Um, not like a ton of not a ton of power right now, but he does a lot of things really well, and he seems like he can he can play the game. And you know he's he's one of those Vandy commitments, so it might be harder to sign him away unless you're really paying him some real money. But that's a prep bat that I like right now. He's um, kind of like a Corbin Carroll. He, yeah, oh, similar. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if he hits the ball quite as hard as Corbin does. Uh, I, I got sold on Corbin. I, I'm that that still stings. Uh, oddly enough, by the way, uh, this will be, this is of interest to Matt. Uh, I recently did a baseball card break and I managed to get the Diamondbacks and I did get a uh, Corbin Carroll autograph and I'm gonna, I'm going to cherish it for a long time because I still really, I would have picked him over Langoliers for sure. Um, I'm, I, I, and I like Langoliers, but I think Corbin Carroll has the chance to be something special. Um, anyway, but that's, that's besides the point. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong's a guy that I like a lot, can run. Um, I also like Gage Workman, uh, who's gonna get a lot of scouting because his teammate is gonna be going in the top Three picks probably in Spencer Torkelson, but uh, he can play really well. And he's a switch hitter, plays third base. A guy that I like a lot uh, as a college bat and kind of coming out. So, but right now it's kind of a uh, the way people should be thinking about the draft is just familiarizing with yourself with the guys who are going to be at the bottom, like you know, are not like the top fifteen picks because every year this happens. Every year people go, well, is there a chance that this guy slides to us? The answer is very likely no. Because the guy you're talking about is a guy that's a, he's considered a 12 pick, a, 12, a top 12 pick for a reason, and the likelihood that he's going to slide to us means one of two things: either one, it's not going to happen, or two, if he does, then the Braves don't want him because there's some sort of injury concern or some sort of signability concern. It's you, you can't again. People, I think, fall in love with the guy that they want and then try to engineer ways that they can somehow get them. Now, the one thing that can happen that's interesting in this particular draft for the Braves. Is whether is if Josh Donaldson signs elsewhere, because that means they actually get a comp round pick. Uh, now they've already given up a pick in the draft because they signed Will Smith, and there's an outside chance that they could still. I mean, is there anyone else that has draft pick compensation even available that's even attached to them? I can't remember offhand. Um, other than Josh Donaldson, who the Braves wouldn't lose a pick if they signed, if they re-signed him, but so I don't think they can lose another pick, or at least it's not likely. But they could gain a pick back, which means that their their bonus pool would get back to respectable, get more respectable, and then they might be able to do some things. But even then, you're dealing with the guys that have fallen to you. It's hard to float guys past a lot of these other teams that have a lot of bonus pool money for other reasons. You know, whether it be just you know the competitive balance type stuff that you know from these teams that are like from markets that you know get extra picks because they're special. Um, it's hard. Actually, to kind of... there is one guy that's out there that has some link to the Braves. Marcelo Zuna declined the Cardinals' qualifying offer. I wasn't sure, but I yeah, just looked that up. I, see, I was trying to remember all the guys that had gotten it, but yeah, you're right. So it's theoretically possible that the Braves could sign Ozuna. That's true. Uh, in which case, that would change things. But if if Donaldson does sign elsewhere, and the Braves are signed Ozuna, which is probably the most likely course of events if Donaldson signs elsewhere, I think, or at least it's one of the likely outcomes, they would lose another pick but they would still gain one of those picks that's basically at the bottom of the first round. Then some interesting things could happen, and I think that they can make some interesting decisions in terms of how they're going to draft towards the bottom. But even then, you're kind of at the mercy of the other 20-something teams ahead of you versus you know, being at the top of the draft and then maybe having the comp picks, and all of a sudden you have a lot of bonus pool money, and you can try to do something with both of your top picks. It, it doesn't give you as much bonus pool money as you would think, and ultimately you want to be able to just take advantage of the players that are in front of you rather than trying to play too many games with bonus pool uh, when you're that far down on the first round. Um, all right. So this is going to be a quick one. Uh, I'm, and I'm just going to answer it because it's just more of a informative thing than kind of an opinion thing. Uh, what is the purpose of the rule five draft? What is MLB trying to accomplish by having it? So if this is actually a pretty simple, a pretty simple question to answer before the, the, before the rule five draft or the, the 
iterations that have occurred since like the 1950s have been in place, what could theoretically happen is that let's say the Yankees just sign a, like all the, the international guys and draft a bunch of guys. They get their roster that they want at the major league level. They fill out their 40-man roster. And then they have a ton of prospects that are just sitting in the minor leagues. Theoretically, those are guys that could have major league jobs, but they're not because they're under contract with the Yankees, and they can't do anything about that because they're stuck in the Yankees farm system and then they're, they're under team control there. The way this is important is because with the inclusion of the Rule 5 draft, in order to keep players who have been playing for a certain amount of time and this depends on when they were they signed. If they're over a certain age, it's four years. If it's under a certain age, it's five years. So if they've been in the minor league system that long and their team is not willing to put them on their 40-man roster, this gives them a chance to get another team that is willing to put them on their 25-man roster, which means that they think that they are ready to be on their big league club and, and produce for them in the big leagues. Gives them a chance to work rather than simply being stuck in the minor leagues just simply because of the organization that they're in. It allows, it's basically to prevent stockpiling of minor league players. Um, you know, this gets a little bit trickier in terms of like, you know, how, when, when guys can become minor league free agents, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the short version. It's that the, it, this prevents minor league players from being stock, stockpiled and not getting opportunities to play in the major leagues. And that, you know, there's a lot of labor reasons why that's good. Um, and, you know, you don't necessarily want to have a bunch of guys just sitting in the minor leagues who could it be, for the growth of the game, could be producing for another team line the team league to be more competitive. So the, re- the reason that the Rule 5 draft exists is for that purpose. Now what happens in practice is that most of the time that's simply just relievers because guys who have never played in the major leagues getting a 25-man spot and then not getting off back to their previous team, most of the time those are relievers. Every once in a while there's a position player involved and there's been some notable exceptions and some of those exceptions have been, you know, have been offered back. So we don't see a lot of those selections, but it's kind of to prevent that from happening. So like make them, make the teams that have these prospects make a decision about putting these guys in the 40 man roster or not. Cause once you get put on the 40 man roster, all sorts of benefits, increased pay, things like that, all those things go into place for that player, even if they're not in the major leagues. And once they get to the major leagues, obviously they get the pay boost and then we get the service time and all that. But that's the short version is that it's to prevent that stockpiling from happening because it's unfair to the players and it's better for the league overall. All right, now we're going to get into a question that is kind of difficult to answer because uh, we don't have enough information, but we're going to try for it anyway. And that is, how important are spin rates? Does Ian Anderson's low spin rates and walk rates concern you? Uh, Matt, I'll go to you first, then Garrett. I think spin rates are as important as velocity. I think that a high spin rate is obviously ideal, but... Just like a certain pitcher's low spin rate or low velocity, they can actually overcome that. I mean, Anderson's spin rate, I don't think, is nearly as bad as some people actually make it out to be. I don't think it's horrible, which is what some people try to make it seem as. It's below average, but it's not something that's going to be something that keeps him from succeeding. I would not actually worry about that. And I mean... Even without looking at the spin rates, I've seen him pitch live. The ball moves enough. It, I mean, it's not the most live fastball I've ever seen, but it's an adequate spin rate on the fastball. So in terms of Ian Anderson, I don't think it's a big deal. Overall, I think it's about the same importance as velocity, at least with the fastball. With the other pitches, um, it has some impact. It, but just the overall movement of the pitch horizontally and vertically, as well as the spin, really help to tell you how good that pitcher is going to be. Garrett, what about you, man? I think I think Matt hit it on the head here. I mean, it helps to have a high spin rate, of course. It's easier to miss bats that way, but as long as you know what you're doing, it really doesn't matter all that much you look at a guy i mean just on the praise mike Schulga has very slightly but a below average spin rate and obviously you know i mean he's a freak of nature he can put the ball wherever he wants to but as long as you i think the important thing is to know who you are as a pitcher and what you can do and know that okay i have you know i don't get a lot of spin on my fastball so i have to focus on locating my pitches I have to keep the ball down I have to focus on getting my balls a guy like Ian Anderson the situation he's coming into he's got 
a good defensive infield. He's pitches to contact, you know, so he's not a guy that struggles with that. And he has the off-speed stuff to make up for it. I mean, I don't think that – I mean, fastball spin rate I don't think matters as much as off-speed stuff. So, you know, if you're looking at his fastball spin rate – I, you know, I don't care. It's more important to have the off-speed stuff. Now his curveball spin rate is also low, but it's, well, it's a slower pitch. So when you have the lower velocity and the low spin rate, it still moves because it has longer to move. It just has more time in the air. And so he still bats and it's more important to miss bats to locate your pitches than it is to, you know, have a specific spin rate or whatever. Um, you know, as for the walk rates with Anderson, I don't it bother me. He's young. He just got to AAA. Really, AAA is the only time he's ever had a horrible walk rate. He hasn't been great in the past, but it's the first time it's been horrible. He was doing really well at AA. He was adjusting to a new ball. I don't have none of what he did at AAA. None of what he did triple at AAA last year. Just throw it out. It, it was a new ball. It was the juice ball, all of that. Anything he did in AAA last year just doesn't matter. And so you look at him, he missed bats against very good competition. He had decent walk rates, especially towards the end of the year. And every time I've seen him in person once, uh, I had some issues with tipping, but the actual, you know, he had some issues with tipping pitches. That might've been one time thing. I'll have, you know, I don't notice it watching him. I haven't noticed it other times watching him, so I don't think that's something that I worry about. So his pitches look good. His pitches are move enough. He locates them, and he really – I mean, he has decent enough velocity. He does everything you look for in a pitcher. Um, I – you know, and every time I've watched him – oh, it's harder to watch him on MILB TV – you know, you don't see as much, but anytime we watched him there, I mean, in double A, with the ball he was comfortable with, he dominated. I mean, his curveball looked great. His changeup is fantastic. I mean, everything, you know, and actually low spin rates for a pitch, especially a changeup, and that's one of the reasons this changeup is so good. Low spin rates on a pitch like a changeup can actually help with the movement and the fate of the pitch and can make it even somewhat more deceptive. And so as long as he harnesses his arsenal and makes sure to really take advantage of his low spin rates and try to keep still work on getting ground ball, he'll succeed. I mean, I have full confidence in Anderson. It's, he's the only, he's the only pitcher in the minor leagues right now that I can say I have full confidence that he is going to succeed, succeed at the next level, barring injury or a significant back up in his stuff he is you know the other guys are good i think we're gonna succeed in the major leagues the pitchers flame out that you can't really count on more than that but anderson is kind of a cut above the rest of the guys where he he is die in the system and i have i don't have any concerns with him on that front so i have a couple of thoughts here and um one is that I think there's a misconception that a guy has one spin rate number, and that just isn't true. Uh, the, the 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 spin rates that you look at are fastball spin are fastball spin rates, and then on breaking balls generally, because you're not looking for you know, no one really cares about uh, the spin rate of a guy's changeup, right? Uh, because Garrett's right, it's like you know like the, how that pitch fades has nothing to do with spin, and more kind of like how the ball. I mean, you, you actually don't want it to spin that much. And, you know, kind of how it fades and kind of what, and what grip you're using in terms of how you're throwing your change up. There's, there's lots of different ways to get that and do that. And it's not necessarily helpful to look at a spin rate in that particular case. Now, if you're looking at a fast, fastball spin rate, generally when you're talking about like starting from like the really low, which is like, you know, like the high, to, like, you know, 1700 to 1900 RPMs. Uh, if you're doing in 200 increment, 200, like increments of 200 all the way up to like over 2500, there's a really good chart. That driveline put out, uh, and that's about swinging strike percentage. And it's just that, you know, it kind of shows the correlation both to velocity as well as spin rate. And it does seem to show that there's like a sweet spot for a lot of pitches. Like, for example, if you're throwing over 100 miles an hour, the swinging strike percentage that you're going to get between 23 and 25 RP, 2500 RPMs is 17%. If you're going higher than that, that drops by 5%. And then 
if, but if you're going a little bit lower than that, it drops by 6%. So it seems like, so you kind of want to be in that certain, if you're throwing that particular velocity, then you want your spin rate to be this, cause that's where you get the best swinging swipe percent, swipe, strike percentage. This also goes into launch angle and things like that. The short version is, and if you look at this chart, it seems pretty instructive. It's that the differences you're getting in swinging strike percentage in terms of your fastball spin rate is like from within each bracket, if there's differences of like two to three, usually uh, the big differences that you see are at that hundred plus mile an hour. But since we, the Braves don't have anybody that we're having this conversation about, we're not going to look at that bracket. And you see like, you know, the difference between 2100 RPM, 2100 RPMs and 2400 RPMs is like a difference of 2% in strike in swinging strike percentage. And I think that what the guys are getting at is an point is an important one is that ultimately what's important is that you have to know what your pitches are doing and you can, you can, and you can do those things consistently and then you can command those pitches. Some guys can throw 97, 90, 97 or 98 miles an hour and reach back for it. And if that's the case, when they, when the ball leaves their hand, they have to know what that ball pitch is going to be doing in order to get the desired effect. Um, and you know, with a, a lower spin rate guy, there are some concerns and like you may not miss as many bats, but if you can, if you are able to command your pitches, which is the concern I have with Ian is that there has been some command issues combined with the new baseball. I think he's going to have to really learn and spend significant time figuring out how his pitches move now with the existence of the new ball. And this is complicated by the fact that it seems like that what people are now kind of ex- experiencing is that there's been, there was inconsistent stitching on those balls. And I don't know if that's necessarily true of the ones in the minor leagues, but it definitely was true of the ones in the major leagues. And if there's a fix put into place, does that mean it's an entirely new ball, or is it kind of back closer to what the one he was throwing in, you know, double A and below, or the one he was throwing last year in triple A? So that, I, I get it's it's very hard for me to evaluate any pitchers that are in triple A right now because it's hard to knock them because there's a it's a new baseball and the physics are just simply different. But it's also hard to ignore simply because. I think that the ball is very, very similar, if not exactly similar, to the one that's in the major leagues. So what? So how? So how do you evaluate that? Uh, particularly when we're talking about spin rate. Now, in terms of spin rates, importance overall. A lot of people, if I asked what Tuki Toussaint's spin rate on his curveball is, a lot of people would be, oh yeah, it's close to three thousand. You know, and like three thousand is just like the number that you want to be close to if you're throwing a really good curveball. So what Carter Stewart was throwing over when he was in the, in the draft and was one of the reasons why he was being loved by a lot of Braves fans is the crazy spin rate on his curveball. Tukey's curveball was spinning about 2,600 when he was in the major leagues, which is around the same as Clayton Kershaw, who's a really good, who throws a really good curveball too, but it's not a number that jumps off the page. A lot of it has to do with not just the spin rate, but also the angle of the spin and how they, and how a pitcher commands those pitches. All these things matter. And again, a guy with a really good spin rate and really good command is going to have really good things happen for him. But it's not necessarily like if a guy has a low, a low spin rate, it's not a death sentence. It just isn't. So I, I, the short version of the story is that spin rate is a part of the puzzle. It is not all of it. And ultimately, you can look at guys who don't have great spin rates. I think Madison Bumgarner is another guy that seems to get this crazy movement on his pitches, even though it doesn't seem like it's like moving. It, it, it shouldn't be getting the movement that it does, it does, but it does. And so it's a part of why spin rate should explain part of the why of what you're seeing. But if it doesn't explain the why, then there are, are going to be other explanations that are worth exploring. And in Ian's case, he does get a lot of movement on his pitches. And that's kind of what spin rates generally try to predict is, you know, how much spin, how much movement are you going to end up getting? Because that's where movement on a baseball generally comes from. But the angle of that spin and kind of how that release happens, as well as deception and all this other stuff, all these things go into it. Should you be concerned about his command a little bit? Sure. Should you be concerned that his spin rate isn't elite? I mean, I don't know if I call it concern, but it's something that you have to think about, especially when you had, he had some struggles in AAA. But it's not something that, especially given all, everything that you hear from scouts, is, is how good he, this kid can be, uh, with all the different pitches that he does have. It, give him some time. Give him some time with the new baseball. Let him figure it out. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out next year and is, you know, and lights the world on fire because his stuff is that good and the arm is that good. Okay, guys, we have a few more questions we're going to go through, but before that, we're going to take a little wor- break to hear a word from our sponsors. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, guys, and we're back. We're going to be only a few more questions. I just want to kind of make sure that we, you know, get, get to a nice variety of topics. Um, and this one is kind of based on the draft strategy of how, of what the Ribs had done in the past. Uh, and Matt, I'll go to you first and then Garrett. Um, if the Braves pitching prospects bust outside of Soroka and Freed, will that reflect poorly on drafting so many arms? Matt, you're first. No, no, I think that for the most part, the arms that they took were the best available players at that pick. Now, I don't necessarily think that Wentz was necessarily, Mueller as well, necessarily the best player. There might have been a couple other guys there, maybe a bat in there that I would have taken at that time. I mean, they've worked out, especially Muller, I mean, his upside is huge at this point, even though there's some questions. So you can't really knock them for taking any of the pitching that they took. I mean, where Colby Allard was before the summer, before his senior year, before when he shoved that velocity spike, he was in the running for that top five. So it's not like the Braves reached on any of these pitchers. They took the best available player, it just happened to be a pitcher. Garrett, what about you, man? I I don't know if it reflects poorly necessarily on the draft strategy as much as it does on their development process because, you know, you look at these guys, there have been, you know, minor injuries here and there outside, you know, like Weigel had his Tommy John, but really for the most part, they haven't had a bunch of injuries with their pitchers. And so when you see talented pitchers that don't get injured, you kind of expect them to keep developing. And a lot of those guys have gotten to triple a and just stall. And I think that is an issue with pitchers in general, but it's been especially an issue with pitchers in the brave system. And they've just got to figure it out. They've got to, you know, it, it, there may not necessarily be something wrong, but there's something along the way that is not allowing these pitchers to reach full potential, and something has to change in that fact. Now, these guys, it's not over. I mean, you know, you see Allard's done reasonably well with Texas, uh, and these guys are all still young. They can still succeed, but so far they haven't. And I said it earlier, this process whole rebuilding process has kind of made me lean towards batters more but I think for me it's more of a matter of their trade value when they get you know triple a bats are more valuable than triple a arms they just are because pitchers are volatile but I don't think that I mean all the guys they drafted were good players all the guys they drafted had success at the lower minor leagues all the guys they drafted seemed to be guys that were supposed to succeed and they just haven't and I don't the drafting has been very very good it's their development at the upper minor leagues that to me has lagged behind so I have differing thoughts kind of from Garrett uh, I agree with Garrett's general premise is that in terms of certainty and value overall that given two players of equal value that you're probably going to get a better return on a bat versus a a pitcher, generally speaking. It is also true that there's a lot of attrition with pitchers in general, which 
does co- cause concern when anyone picks a picture on a case, picture on a case by case basis because it just seems like there's a much better chance that that player's going to flame out. But if you don't pick pictures, then you're not going to have pictures, and then you're relying on the free agent and trade market to kind of wait for those guys to come out of the minors, the ones that actually survive the gauntlet, and then make a move for those guys because there's there's real costs associated with that, and you have to have a lot of faith in your in your development system. I don't think that Soroka and Freed coming out of a group of probably 10 to 12 really good starting pitching prospects is a bad outcome. I just don't. That the, 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 the reality of what happens in the minor leagues, two arms that that many, that this, that, that Colby Allard, Bryce Wilson, Mike Soroka, uh, Max Freed, uh, looks like, and Kyle Wright, those five guys have, all, this is from drafts just from 2015 on, that five guys, and there's more than that, Tuki Tassant, another guy, all those guys made it to the major leagues is a minor miracle. That is hard to do for any system. Now, reaching their full potential is a lot trickier, and if you look at these drafts that we're talking about right now, that one's ever like, what about this strategy? Colby Allard was taken 14th overall in the 2015 draft. I can't find any player in the first round, that was Andrew Benintendi was taken seventh, and I'm just gonna make sure I'm not, I'm not losing my mind here. From the seventh pick on, I'm not sure if there's a pick a, a, a player other than Walker Buehler who was picked 24th and had to come back from Tommy John surgery that same year that I would have picked over over Colby Allard regardless of position. There are players that were interesting. And again, I understand why the Reds would take a Tyler Stevenson because at the time he was a hot name, right? Or a guy like, you know, a Brady Aiken because, you know, the Indians wanted to take a flyer on him. Kevin Newman has put, is, looks like a decent-ish, uh, shortstop prospect from that draft, but the Braves got the best draft, one of the best shortstops in this pack, in this draft in Dansby Swanson. And Alex Bregman's turned out to be the best player in the whole draft, in this whole draft from the looks of things. But, you know, and then again, we have Mike Stroga who's picked at 28. Those were not bad picks. And then if you look at this, the next draft, it's kind of the same thing. You have Nick, you have Ian Anderson that was picked at number three. I'm looking at the top ten picks, and you have Mickey Moniak, who's been basically a bust at the first overall pick. Nick Senzel, who's a, who is a good player uh, for the Reds, but again, the Braves didn't have a shot at him. Riley Pint, who's been terrible. Corey Ray, which is iffy. A.J. Puck, who's been injured. I'm not sure how much he's going to do for the athletics. Braxton Garrett's been a walking injury. Cal Quantrill has the pedigree, hasn't done much as, as a Padre. He's kind of a junk baller. Matt Manning is another guy who has some potential. Um, and Zach Collins, who's a catching prospect for the White Sox, who again has some potential, but the White Sox keep loading up, have kept loading up on catchers for a reason. You look at, you look through these drafts and you talk about the guys that the Braves, you wish the Braves had taken and you taken all these bats, but there's a lot of these bats that missed and there's a lot of these pitchers that have missed and the Braves have done pretty well for themselves in these drafts. Minor league baseball is just hard. There's a lot of attr- there's a lot of attrition in prospects. It's just the, that's the way it is. If you don't want to look at a minor league system and then have your minds changed on whether a guy is good over the course of a season and have that happen multiple times, then you need to stop doing this because you can't fall in love with every guy that that has a good game. It's just what happens. It's that ba- major league baseball is really really hard, and the Braves have done really well for themselves. I mean, again, if you look at these drafts. There are some good players here and there. Again, Kyle Wright picked fifth overall. You have Royce Lewis, who's a good prospect. Hunter Green is injured. Mackenzie Gore, good prospect. Brendan McKay, good prospect. But those weren't available. And now we have Kyle Wright. And after that, you have Austin Beck, who hasn't done much. Paven Smith, who hasn't done much. Adam Hazley, who I don't, you know, don't think he's going to be much in Florida, in, in, in Philadelphia. Kesson Hyura is a guy that I think, and then we talk about Hyura and Joe Odell uh, in that draft, which we talk a lot about. What is that? What is that? You just had to bring Joe Outdell up. Oh, gotcha. Okay, I was like, what is that noise? Uh, but I mean, like, the, you know, but you have to go further down the draft. It's not like that the, got the pick immediately after Kyle Wright was this bat that has gone wild. Although, you know, Ad- to be fair, Adele was a guy that was legitimately around that area and could have gone top five just as easily as anyone else. I mean, I did prefer Wright at have. the time. But Adele was a guy that was a legitimate top five, and Huera was a guy that on draft that's, day, that, that, there that, were rumors the, I think about not. him enough <laughs> that I pre-wrote that the Braves drafted him. So honestly, I, honestly, of all those guys, Wright is the only one that hasn't really, I mean, Wright, 
as a professional has really never shown what he showed in college. I think, I mean, other than that, really all the guys have, all their higher picks have pretty much done what they were supposed to. You know, they have their issues with the upper levels, but the guys have just been like a complete disaster. Well, so, okay, you must be talking about the guys that are picked ahead of him, because if you're looking at Austin Beck and Pavin Smith and Adam Hazley and think that, that they are better than they were when they were in college, you've lost I'm your I'm talking mind. about the guys that the Braves have drafted. Oh, I'm talking okay. about the guys that the Braves have drafted. Only Wright hasn't been, you know, everybody else has really lived up to or kind of exceeded what we expected in the minor leagues. Now, not all of them have made it. Transfer that to the major leagues, but Wright, Wright never hasn't yet shown that. He's shown flashes. He hasn't yet shown that. But really, I mean, all the guys have pretty much been the and guys also drafted. I mean, and in his case, we're talking about a guy that was drafted in 2017. It's not like he's had all the time in the world to kind of get better yeah, right. and to kind of hone his arsenal. So the short answer to the general question is that reflect poorly on pitching, drafting poorly is no. You, you want to just draft well, period. And in the case of the Braves, they've done well for where they were picking to pick the guy that has a really good value. That does not mean that every draft pick is your first round. Every just because every first round pick doesn't hit and hit immediately and is an impact player, that is not a sign of bad drafting. It is just not because it's really hard to hit those guys. And some of those guys are surprised and they develop into their own in their own ways. Is the short version of the story. And what Matt was talking about, the, the point isn't that yes, Hyura and Adele were like potentially in play at five. That is not an indictment of the strategy of pitch of drafting pitchers. And Kyle Wright was a potential number one pick. In that same in that same vein, rather than just those guys being top five picks. If Wright wasn't available, I imagine they probably would have picked Hyura. I think because that's because that's what it sounded like that was going to be a potential that was going to happen. Uh, if it really kind of depends on how everything else would have would have would have fallen, and that would have been really interesting. But that's not an indictment of the strategy. I mean, there are certain players that are available that. Again, the Braves were linked to Austin Beck. They were linked to other players like that, and they could have just been busts if they had bat- drafted bats as, sim- as easily as could have been pitching. They ultimately, you just might pick the best player available, and the Braves for a while, particularly when Brian Bridges was in charge of the scouting department, was one of the absolute best at evaluating pitching prospects. I am much less convinced that that is the case now, but that's just kind of the way it goes. All right, next question. Uh, by the end of next year, and we'll, let's answer this one kind of quickly, guys. Is Tuki Toussaint a MLB starter, MLB reliever, or another talented but burnt-out pitcher? Garrett, you first. Uh, short answer, I have no idea. Slightly longer answer, I think he's a reliever. Uh, but I really, I just hope he turns that corner. But, yeah, I think he's probably a reliever. But I don't think he's a major league reliever by the end of the year because the Braves bullpen is kind of stacked. I don't know if he's going to break through on that level quite yet. Matt? MLB reliever. I'm willing to bet on that. I think he's going to be a major league reliever, too. I'm not sure if it'll be with the Braves, uh, and that makes me really sad because, you know, as a starter, his stuff is really exciting, and as a person, he's great. Uh, I think he's been really good for his teammates. Uh, I am just, unfortunately, the command issues he's had combined with some issues with giving up the long ball. He was actively not good last year. So, again, tough Tough situation to be in, but if I had to guess, he is going to be a major league reliever. I'm not 100% certain that's going to be with the Braves. Um, next question is, which 2019 high school draft pick are you most excited to see coming in the 2020? No duplicates, exclamation point. Matt, you first. I think this one's pretty obvious. My, one. Oh, my favorite out of those guys is going to be Mackay Backstrom. I mean, this guy was a guy that had first-round buzz this summer before his senior year. Struggled a little early his senior year and really started to rebound, but I mean, the way he hits the ball is just something to watch. And he, I know, has been putting in quite a lot of work this offseason, so he's the guy I'm most interested to see. I mean, there's plenty of other guys that I could have answered, but the name that jumps to the top of my head as the guy I'm most excited to see is Backstrom. And I know I just stole Garrett's answer. Garrett, you're up. I, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm very excited to meet Makai. I think he's, I'm hoping he's going to be fantastic. No, I mean, the guy I've talked about him before, the guy that I really like is Michael Harris. I mean, I, I saw him for, I sat down in Rome and I was really blown away with what he do, did. And I'm interested to see if he can bring that into this year. I mean, he has all of the physical tools 
and it, he could really be a a very very solid major league starter. I mean, an all star type talent. I mean, he's a terrific player, and I'm excited to see him next year. Uh, both of those are really good picks. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and just default to Vaughn Grissom, who had a really good debut, um, and I think is a guy that's going to probably see time at Rome relatively quickly. I don't know if he'll start there. He might start in Danville and then get the promotion. Uh, but he had a really good, you know, de- pro debut. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they give him a chance if they're feeling like they need to challenge some of these these uh, young guys early. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be exactly the same mo considering all the changes in the Braves' scouting and player development side. We'll, we'll see on that. Uh, you know, other names that are worth looking at. Stephen Paolini and Tyler Owens are other games, other names that we really like. Uh, if I'm picking one guy and no duplicates, I'm going with Vaughn Grissom, but you know, those are some other names worth looking at as well. There's one other name that needs to be mentioned in that group is Jared Johnson, the most under the radar out of all of those guys. A guy who really had the velocity of a first day pick, but just came so late into the process with that stuff and did it against such poor overall competition that teams didn't feel comfortable taking him very highly so he ended up on day three but he's right up there with anyone else in that group well there there you go you were kind of expecting you know one player per and then you end up getting about six names that you can kind of be looking at but you got our three and i i think those are probably the safe three it's those three bats that are gonna be really exciting uh Thanks again to everyone for listening. We're going to cut this one a little bit short. Uh, a little bit short. We missed a couple questions simply because uh, somehow I thought it was going to be a, what was going to be a shorter podcast. We've now been recording for over an hour. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast, guys. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to our Twitter account at, at Road the Number Two Atlanta, and you can support us via Patreon. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the Talking Chop podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher. Google, basically any, all of your podcast purveyors, we are on there in some form or fashion. If you could please subscribe to the Talking Chop, you get this podcast as well as the Talking Chop podcast. Where And if you can leave us a five-star review as well, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow, gets more and more listenership, and hopefully we'll be we'll able to continue to grow the show, which has already been growing quite a bit. Again, it's been, it blows us away how often we, kind of, when we don't record, people are really like, seem like they really miss the show. And we're going to do our best to be a little bit more regular, but the show is not happening next week because it's Christmas week. So we're going to take the we're going to take that week off, and then we're going to try to hit the ground running, uh, getting into the new year, and hopefully Garav will be around by then. Thanks again so much, guys, and until next time, guys, we'll see you on the road.